Let's open up God's Word this morning. Let me invite you to open up the Bible with me today uh, to begin with in Acts chapter 20. And then we'll flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Acts chapter 20 and 1 Timothy chapter 5. And if uh, you're visiting with us or perhaps haven't been with us in two or three weeks, we're uh, in a series on church leadership, uh, leading God's people, a biblical case for church elders, exploring what the Bible has to say about uh, church leadership. And so this is week three of this series, and we want to continue pressing into the New Testament, hearing what God has to say, what his model and what the pattern is for leadership uh, in the local church. And so we've looked at these texts in part before, and we'll look at them once again today. But Acts chapter 20 and 1 Timothy chapter 5. And so as you find your place there in Acts chapter 20, let me invite all who are able, would you join me standing for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 20, I'll read verses 27 through 31, and then 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Acts 20, verse 27. Paul is writing, he's writing, uh, he's speaking, Luke is writing what Paul has said. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And now First Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Paul writes, he says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Would you pause with me as we seek the Lord? Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking, for still speaking through it. And so speak to us now by the presence of your spirit through the proclamation of your of your word. For the good of your church and for Christ's glory in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, today we do continue our dive uh, into the Bible's message on church leadership, namely on uh, these figures that are described as elders, church elders. And as you likely know by now, I'm presenting a, a biblical case uh, for multiple elders in a shared leadership role in the local church. And it's not, as already said, it's not that we uh, don't already have multiple leaders in the church. We do. We have a, a senior pastor. We have a board of trustees. We have deacons. We have committees. We have ministerial staff, all with particular assignments. But the difference in our present practice and what I'm proposing is shared pastoral leadership at the most senior leadership level of the church. 
a plurality of elders, multiple elders, a plurality of elders, some full-time, but most simply spiritually mature men already in the church, recognized by the church, and set apart by the church for this particular responsibilities. You, you might think uh, a group like trustees uh, or a similar leadership group in the church who meet the biblical qualifications for pastors being set aside to share the weight of pastoral leadership, meeting regularly to seek the Lord in prayer, to study His Word, and to to shepherd the church, moving together in that way in the same direction. It was a beautiful day yesterday. I bet some of you got outside. We got outside for uh, quite a while and did some yard work. And so uh, we had some beds there in front of the house that had not... Uh, been um, had not received any attention for quite some time, and so we were ready to begin planting and preparing for planting. And I've got I've got some yard tools, like I've got a spade and a shovel, and I've got you know a hoe and a rake and some other things like that that you probably have in in your garage uh, that could be used for uh, such such work. And we could have done that. Like I, I could have assigned or asked different members of the family, hey, here, here's your tool, here's my tool, let's all work together using our, our different uh, our different tools to get the ground ready uh, to plant. And, and, and it, it could have worked, but it probably would have taken days. So instead what I did, I went and I rented a uh, Honda mid-time tiller from Home Depot. Now this is a pretty bad boy tiller. This is uh, a real machine, right? It's got a disc on each end and a number of, of tines. It's, I looked it up. It's six horsepower and it does some work. But even so, it, it was challenged. It struggled to get through the rocky soil of, of Meadowbrook. But all of those tines working together in the same direction, side by side, able to accomplish much more, much more efficiently in the same and much less time. That's really what we're talking about when we talk about a plurality of, of leadership moving in the same direction, seeking the Lord to, together, side by side, sharing the weight of shepherding for the glory of God and the good of the church. And my main point has been just that throughout this series. My main point has been that Christ equips His church with shared pastoral leadership for the congregation's good and His Glory, shared pastoral leadership for the congregation's good and for his glory. And you might think, does this matter? Like, isn't this one of those gray areas in the Bible where there is much room for varying leadership structures and polity playing out in a local church? And on one level, I would be quick to say, perhaps, perhaps. Like this isn't, as already stated, this isn't a first-tier theological issue in the way that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone is. Or in the way that Christ's command to, to love God and to love our neighbor is. But even so, it does matter. It matters because a plurality of elders in a single local church appears to be the biblical pattern. And I would say it helps the church display the gospel. God intends for the gospel to be on display in the church. In other words, the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, changes people. And because it changes people, the church 
filled with people changed by the grace of God should look different than the world. Church leadership should look different than secular leadership. And I'm convinced that shared pastoral leadership is one way that God intends to use his church to display his gospel. By shared pastoral leadership, I I mean a plurality of elders. A church elder is a pastor and a pastor is an elder. Same position in the local church. And the task is to shepherd the church to follow Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we paused for a minute to define a couple terms, these leadership positions in the church. And so I want to review those before going any further. Number one, elders or pastors are servant leaders who shepherd the church to follow Christ. Servant leaders who shepherd the church to follow Christ. Now, the other position that we see in the church that's noted in the New Testament is deacon, is deacon. And in many Baptist churches, in many many churches in our tradition, deacons are functionally acting, at least in part, as elders. Right? Sort of carte blanche freedom to guide the church and to lead the church in various directions, keeping the pastor in check and making major church decisions. Now, praise God, that's not how our deacons operate here at Meadowbrook, nor is it what we see in the Bible. According to the Bible, deacons are leading servants who help care for the church's practical needs. Leading servants who help care for the church's practical needs. And for us, that means helping care for assigned church members. That means praying for and with the pastor and ministers. In fact, our deacons, deacon of the day, gathers with with me on Sunday mornings and prays for me ahead of our church service. Praise God for that. And today I got a double dose of that. It was good. Praise the Lord for that. Our deacons are also reaching out to church guests. They're welcoming new members. They're serving our seniors. They're serving communion. And they're quickly responding whenever there's a need. They're a gift to the church. Christ cares about his church and he equips his church with what she needs. And one thing she needs is shared leadership. And I'm suggesting, based on the scriptures, that the best kind of shared leadership in the church is biblical eldership, meaning a plurality of elders responsible for the pastoral oversight of the church. Now, you have probably noted that I'm using pastor and and elder interchangeably. I'm using both of those words from time to time and intentionally so, as they refer to the same position, also described as overseer. In the New Testament, for leaders of the local church. But I'm I'm using elder quite a bit, particularly when I talk about uh, plurality of elders, number one, because that's the word that's most often used in the New Testament. And number two, I think most of us associate pastor uh, with uh, someone that's hired and paid by the church to perform a particular function in the church. But what are the benefits of biblical eldership? And we... Began going down that path last week. I want to review a couple very quickly and then talk about a third this morning. But number one, a plurality of elders highlights Christ's supremacy. Plurality of elders highlights Christ's supremacy. The chief function of elders is to point to the chief shepherd, to Jesus Christ, who gave his life for his sheep. Elders are pastors and pastors are under shepherds charged with caring For the good shepherd's sheep. Paul says as much in Acts 20. He says, keep watch. Keep 
watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Peter says something quite similar in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, be shepherds of God's flock. He's speaking to the elders. He says to the elders, I write, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. You see, a church built on a human pastor or personality misrepresents the gospel and I think robs Jesus of his glory. But a plurality of elders faithfully functioning highlights Christ's supremacy as the head of the church. All right, number two, a plurality of elders provides pastoral help benefiting the congregation. So a plurality of elders highlights Christ's supremacy as the head of the church. And number two, a plurality of elders provides pastoral help benefiting the congregation. We're not going to spend much time here today because this is where we camped out last week. We heard Jethro's words to his son-in-law Moses in Exodus 18. Uh, and then Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, suggesting that all elders in a local church, all overseers, all pastors serve together to lead the church while some of the elders also labor in preaching and in teaching. And so we noted that multiple elders charged with shepherding the whole church allows better congregational care, provides a balance of gifts and wisdom, and encourages every member to engage in ministry. So a plurality of elders highlights Christ's supremacy. A plurality of elders provides pastoral help, benefiting the congregation. And third, finally, a plurality of elders affords necessary pastoral accountability. Pastoral accountability. Now here's where I want us to slow down and to lean in today because this is so important and yet often overlooked. Perhaps the high value that we Americans place on success combined with our modern celebrity culture leads us to assume that those in prominent positions are immune from trials and temptations and failures that seem to plague the rest of the world. And brothers and sisters, this simply is not true. Not in the world, nor in the church. We we pastors need accountability. And we need protection. Specifically because of the public nature of pastoral work and the many messy situations in which pastors serve and counsel and speak and aim to model Christ-like character in the midst of satanic attacks. For these reasons, Paul says in First Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, he says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. In other words, protect your leaders from unsubstantiated accusations. Don't believe every word you hear spoken against an elder, for there are some who delight in the downfall of the church's leaders. Protect your leaders from unsubstantiated accusations. However, Paul says, when there is credible evidence from multiple witnesses that our pastors are persisting in sin, then we're called to rebuke them and to rebuke them in the presence of all. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. 
Paul says, but those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others, here the implication is the other elders, may take warning. I, I know I'm, I'm risking here airing some dirty laundry, but I need to say this. At present, at present, our most senior leadership roles in the church bypass any notion of required spiritual examination for the people assigned to fill those roles, apart from a pastor. Certainly we, we do that with deacons. We do that in a thorough way with deacons, but they're servants. I'm talking about others, a more senior leadership role. And I'm suggesting that based on the Bible's teaching that we change that intentionally for the good of the church, the witness of the gospel, and the glory of Jesus Christ. A plurality of elders with Christ-like character committed to shepherding the church are meant to hold one another accountable, to encourage one another in ministry and to speak the truth to one another in love. And so in, in most Baptist churches with elders... This means a lead pastor, often viewed as the first among equals, given greater responsibility, yet equal authority. Equal pastoral authority allows true pastoral accountability. And biblical accountability helps protect a pastor from error. Biblical accountability with those with which he's standing side by side in ministry, and ministry leadership helps protect a pastor from error. When a single pastor holds unmatched authority, he's especially susceptible to error. To error. And even with clear character qualifications in Scripture for pastors, so many pastors fall. We know this. And when pastors fall into sin or error, the church suffers, often rocking the faith of members in the flock. And because we all have blind spots, every one of us, and because we're all prone to sin, and because sin nature runs deep in us, we all need accountability, especially, we might say, those charged with shepherding God's flock. Think of Peter, even Peter, the leader and spokesman for the twelve, was wrong. He was wrong. And when Peter was wrong, Paul did not hesitate to call him out on it, to confront him. We're all prone to sin and theological error. This is why Paul tells the Ephesian elders, I think, in verse 27, he says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. I've held nothing back. The whole counsel, the whole will of God, meaning all of the teachings of God's word. And he says, keep watch over yourselves. Watch yourself. And all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Keep watch, Paul says. Keep watch because, he goes on, he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. He says, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. 
We see similar things happening, warnings throughout the New Testament. False teaching infiltrating the church. Think of the letters. So many of Paul's letters are written to address false teaching that is running wild in the local church or sin in the church. You see, the truth matters, right? Doctrine does matter. And one of a pastor's responsibilities is guarding the flock from false teaching. And multiple pastors, multiple elders, together committed to the sufficiency and the authority of this book of the Bible can help protect the flock and one another from theological error. Paul tells Timothy, he says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch your life. Watch the way that you're living. Watch your, your doctrine, your theology closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, biblical accountability matters. It matters significantly. It helps protect the pastor from error. And secondly, biblical accountability helps cultivate maturity and godliness. Biblical accountability helps cultivate maturity and godliness. Now, the moment we turn to, to Christ in faith, the very moment we look to Jesus with faith in Him, God cleanses us. This is good news. He cleanses us. He removes our guilt before Him, declaring us righteous, giving us, theologians call this, imputed righteousness, Christ's righteousness credited to us. We call this justification. And the rest of our earthly days as believers are to be spent living out this new status, growing to be more and more like Jesus. We call this sanctification. And growing in God's grace takes time. We know this. It takes significant time as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the people of God around the gospel of Jesus Christ. I played tennis uh, the other day uh, and quickly realized I don't play often enough. You ever do that with anything? You know, tennis is one of those sports. Some of you have played or do play tennis. It's a bit technical. Uh, in, in my mind, it's, it's sort of like golf, although I'm not a, a golfer. Like you, you've, you've got to keep playing in order to maintain a certain level of play. And so I, I came home uh, after a, a long match playing singles, by the way, which I haven't done in quite some Time And I, I told Ashley, I said, I, I just feel like I should be able to step on the court uh, and pick up playing right where I left off about 10 years ago. Right. I just feel like it should happen. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't happen that way. I, I, I still know how to play. But I just don't hit the ball in the same way. I don't do it. It doesn't work because apparently drinking coffee and eating pizza And watching baseball and preaching sermons and parenting kids, these things just don't help you on the tennis court. I mean, heck, thinking about the mechanics of the game doesn't even help you on the court. You've actually got to play. You've got to play. And you've got to play regularly, smacking the ball around with with other tennis players, honing your footwork against their shots, your reaction time in real time, and your mental toughness in true moments of, of competitive play. You've got to be stretched and challenged and encouraged by other players pursuing the same kind of progress. And the same is true 
when it comes to following Jesus. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We were made for community. We were made to be in community in the body of Christ, walking alongside life on life with other believers to sharpen one another in love and to spur one another on to grow in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The author of, of Hebrews warns his audience. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, see to it, believers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. He's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. See to it that none of you turns away from the living God, but encourage one another as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see, Satan desires nothing more than to see folks led away from the living God succumbing to sin. Plurality of elders, faithfully practiced, can help provide the accountability among our pastors that helps cultivate maturity and godliness, glorifying Christ and benefiting his bride. Christ equips his church with shared pastoral leadership for the congregation's good and for his glory. Now, let me take just a moment here before we wrap up this morning to address the question, is what you're proposing, Chris, is this Baptist? Is a plurality of elders Baptist? In other words, is this structure consistent with our Baptist convictions and roots? And the answer is yes. Yes, indeed. In fact, there are churches in our own local association, Shelby Baptist Association, their sister Baptist churches in Birmingham and across Alabama and throughout the Southern Baptist Convention that practice a plurality of, of elders in the way that I'm proposing because this, the distinguishing marks of Baptist polity are local church autonomy and congregational governance. And we've talked about that. Jesus ruled, pastor or elder led, and congregationally governed. In fact, the very first president of our convention, the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, W.B. Johnson, who was president from 1845 to 1851, taught that Christ strictly required each church to have plural eldership. A number of other contemporary denominational leaders today promote the same thing. Al Mohler would be one that you may be familiar with, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary said this. He said the recovery of biblical eldership is one of the most important developments in ecclesiology, that's the doctrine of the church, in our time. And it is happening for a very important reason. Churches are turning to the New Testament once again to determine how congregations are to be organized and led. Likewise, J.D. Greer immediate past president of the Southern Baptist Convention and pastor of the Summit Church, says, our transition to a team of spirit-filled, gospel-driven elders has been one of the best moves we have made in becoming a reproducing church. So all that to say, so, so why don't more Baptist churches adopt this model? There's a number of reasons that have been given real quickly. Let me give you three. Number one, perhaps lack of qualified men in the church. Lack of qualified Men who meet biblical qualifications for pastors in the local church. Meaning it's easier to hire a 
professional, so to speak. Someone trained to come in and to lead a particular ministry. Lack of qualified men. Number two, lack of biblical knowledge. Probably plays a role in many circles. More impressed with marketplace models. Viewing the pastor as the CEO of the church or staff that are hired for particular skills, business skills in the church. That would be another, perhaps, a reason. Number three, third, would be fear of change. Fear of change. Change is hard. We know this. It's uncomfortable. It's uncertain. And we shouldn't change just for the sake of change. It's not a good idea. And we shouldn't change quickly or flippantly at all. But if there is a better way, if there's a better way, let's not fear change. Let's explore it. So let's continue the conversation. Church, let's continue the conversation. It's not a quick thing. Let's continue the conversation. And it's precisely because of Baptist convictions that I'm asking you, church, family, not to check out on this but to engage in the conversation with me. And so those next steps, next Sunday night, May the 15th, again, May 25th, that Wednesday night, come, let's talk about this more. Let's continue the conversation. And number two, let's search the Scriptures and seek the Lord. Let's search the Scriptures, God's Word, and let's seek the Lord because He will guide us. In fact, his word is quite clear in James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask the Lord. And he gives to all, generously, without finding fault. He's the good shepherd. He's the one who cares deeply for the well-being of his flock. One who laid down his very life for his bride. One who doesn't lose a single one the Father gives to him. He is one who gladly equips his church with the leader she needs for the congregation's good and for his glory. Do you, do you know him? Do you know the good shepherd, the chief shepherd? You can know him. He is quite clear. The word of God is quite clear. You can know him. And you come to know him by faith in him. Do you know him? Put your faith in him today. He's good. He's a good and gracious king. He is God over all. He is worthy of praise. And he is here with us this morning. He desires to be known by you. Oh, God, would you help us to put our faith in you? Lord, would you lead us to trust you? Would you lead us to praise you, to lay our lives before you, to exalt you, to sing to you, to confess our sins, knowing that you are faithful and just, Lord, that you will forgive us and Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, that is what you do for us through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Lead us to trust you. Lead us to praise you. Lord, lead us to respond to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.